Welcome to this live podcast at the Wright City Conference, taking place here at the University of Concordia in Montreal. This event is hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies, Canada's leading research institute and think tank for the prevention of mass atrocities, in partnership with Amnesty International and the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. I'm Duncan Cooper. And I'm Alexandrine Royer. This is the third edition of the Wright City Conference, an initiative established in order to bring together inspiring thought leaders who will provide valuable insights regarding pressing human rights issues. Our aim is to provide Canada and the international human rights community with a constructive platform during this time of great upheaval. In this series, we'll be joined by leading human rights voices who will share their perspectives on some of today's challenges in the preservation and protection of human rights. In recent years, political observers have raised the alarm, warning of the steady erosion of democratic principles worldwide. As globalization brings us closer together, we in the human rights community are faced with increasingly complex challenges. The primacy of a human rights-led international framework as a refrain of global politics is being confronted by a new set of actors that reject basic freedoms. Authoritarian regimes are using new technologies to expand repressive state apparatuses and reassert their hold in domestic affairs. Populist politics are threatening to reverse some of the hard-won accomplishments of the human rights movement. The challenge on how to resist and confront these assaults on human rights continues to gain increasing urgency. In the wake of the international community's deteriorating consensus, Canada, and notably the city of Montreal, have continued to steadily position themselves as human rights leaders. Today, we'll be hearing from a range of human rights activists to share their insights on what some have labeled the end of human rights. Rather than a discourse of surrender and abjection, we are hoping our speakers will inspire calls to action and renew commitments to the human rights movement. We'll hear from the Honorable Romeo Dallaire, Special Advisor to the UN, Adama Dieng, Professor Jennifer Welsh, as well as MIGS founder, Professor Frank Chalk. I'm now joined by Adama Dieng, the Special Advisor to the UN Secretary General on the Prevention of Genocide, the former Registrar of the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, and a legal and human rights expert. Welcome. Thank you, thank you. So just to begin, I want to ask, in your view, as both someone working legally and within the UN framework, how have the discourses and practices around genocide prevention evolved since the beginning of your career? I know R2P was adopted in 2005, and it was hailed as an incredible stride towards preventing mass atrocities, but it's since faced some rather sharp criticism following its implementation in Libya, as well as in cases like Syria and Myanmar. So is the framework of R2P the problem, or is it rather state willingness to compromise and adapt? What does the future of human rights look like? Well, I mean, let me first of all say that uh, there has been a lot of uh, exaggeration about uh, the principle of R2P, responsibility to protect. I mean, this was adopted as, uh, I would say, as a result of the failure of the international community in Rwanda, the failure of the international community in Srebrenica. So the world leaders, when they met in 2005 in New York, they agreed that we should no longer allow this to happen in our eyes. We should make sure that never again a population are a victim of genocide 
crimes against humanity, war crime, ethnic cleansing. But what is important, they also added that they have the responsibility to prevent incitement mm -hmm. to the commission of such a crimes. Mm -hmm. So, 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 and which, and this is I'm referring here particularly to the uh, summit outcome document, and namely paragraph 138 and paragraph 139. Mm -hmm. And uh, having said this, the responsibility to protect is well founded on existing. Uh, international human rights uh, norms uh, and uh, namely the obligation to prevent genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes which fall upon all member states mm -hmm. uh, and the responsibility to protect certainly uh, came to give a new impetus to these obligations. To reinvigorate it then. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. and, and of course there are other important uh, accomplishments uh, namely the adoption throughout the years of a broad spectrum of human rights treaties uh, which demonstrate how far we have advanced uh, in the uh, international legal framework for the protection of human rights. I mean, respect for these norms uh, should form the basis uh, of any prevention strategy. Uh, and after all, uh, the prevention of genocide and other atrocity crimes uh, starts with the respect uh, for the human rights of all. And of course, very important uh, is the adoption of the Rome Statute uh, and the establishment of the International Criminal Court, the ICC. Uh, because uh, you will certainly agree with me that uh, justice and peace are interestingly uh, connected. Yes. Uh, not only because uh, accountability is one of the elements uh, of a comprehensive transitional justice process, but also because I believe the mere existence uh, of the court has served as a deterrent effect uh, to many who might have otherwise uh, felt empowered to freely commit atrocities. Yeah. And I remember one day uh, uh, I met with one uh, head of state, an African leader who is no longer in... But he said to me, oh, you know, uh, Mr. Registrar, me, I'm very scared, you know, uh, about uh, uh, the ICC. Uh, I said, why? You should not be scared. Oh, no, no, no. This is uh, really something terrible. I don't want to. I said, then this is a good thing <laughs> that you are scared. And I hope every leader around the world uh, understand that no one is above the law. You can be a head of state. You can be a prime minister. <laughs> you can be the most wealthy man or woman around the world. If you commit atrocity crimes one day, sooner or later, you will face justice. Got it. And this being said also, uh, I have to certainly say that within the United Nations, there has also been a very big emphasis on the importance of prevention. And the different bodies of the organization have pledged strong commitment to, to prevention. However, as much as there is commitment, there has also been many challenges with implementation.
nowadays, not only do we continue to witness ethnic and religious tensions in various regions of the world, but worryingly, there has been a dangerous increase uh, in the number of situations that merit our urgent attention. Yes. The extreme forms of identity-based violence uh, that we have witnessed in countries such as the Central African Republic, CAR, Iraq, South Sudan, uh, Syria, are simply unacceptable. But equally intolerable uh, are the serious human rights violations and abuses uh, that different ethnic, religious, or national groups uh, are suffering in Myanmar, uh, in the North Caucasus, in Nigeria, uh, just to name a few. And Europe also is facing a wave of populism yes. uh, that is slowly eroding uh, the enjoyment of rights and promoting the rise of racism, xenophobia, hate speech, and hate crimes. Uh, and also your neighbor here, the United States, migrants and refugees are being vilified. Uh, so all this, of course, raise alarms and show that despite the accomplishment, we still have a very long way to go. Yeah, over here we're looking at this 2018 Freedom House report, and it's saying that in the past few years, there's been a diminished willingness to intervene, largely because of these populist, uh, illiberal, xenophobic leaders. So more specifically, what factors do you actually attribute to this international retreat from a universal human rights framework? Well, as I have mentioned before, uh, the threat uh, comes from a wave of populism yeah. uh, that is promoting the rise of racism, xenophobia, hate speech, and hate crimes. But this wave is gaining traction yeah. uh, because there is a parallel discontent of many people that feel left behind by technological change, growing inequality. And in addition, there is a rise of extremist views mm -hmm. of identity that have led to uh, terrible acts of terrorism, uh, scaring population across the globe. And no one feels safe anymore. And as I used to say, no one is born terrorist. No one is no. made terrorist. And all this, of course, opened the doors uh, to those who might wish uh, to take advantage to spread fear of perceived threats personified uh, in certain groups based on their identity. And the respect for the human rights of all uh, is put as an obstacle uh, to the protection offered by the leadership of the majority uh, against the supposedly uh, threatening minority, uh, which is therefore considered uh, unworthy of any human rights protection. And the truth seems not to matter anymore. Uh, and uh, I was uh, so glad to hear uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel uh, when receiving uh, the uh, honorary uh, doctorate in Harvard uh, just uh, recently uh, speaking about truth and lies. And, and to, it is very important that we uh, really feel sorry, feel concerned 
that the truth seems not to matter anymore. And instead, people are being manipulated for political or other selfish gains led to believe that human rights are offering protection not to them, but to those who threaten them. Uh, and the human rights are seen as of no use or worse, as an obstacle to their safety and security. And uh, all of this, of course, is very dangerous when almost all of us live in societies that are uh, extremely diverse ethnically, uh, religiously, and racially. Uh, and of course, this is taking uh, us back uh, in the many accomplishments in establishing a strong human rights legal framework uh, which had been flourishing since the establishment of the United Nations. And we are going to uh, celebrate the 75th uh, anniversary of the UN next year, and I would say the 100th also anniversary of the beginning, which was in 1915, uh, the, 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 the League of N Nations. Yeah, the president, 19, yeah. You know, so, and also uh, we have had the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, and one day before the adoption of that declaration, we had the uh, 1948 genocide convention, uh, the convention to prevent and punish the crime of genocide. 9th December, one day before the Universal Declaration was adopted, which was a lot of symbol, because we felt that after the killing of more than 6 million Jews, when we saw the commission of the serious war crimes, crimes against humanity, the world cried, never again. And as a result, felt, okay, we could have prevented what happened in Europe. Therefore, and uh, it was important, the convention first word was prevention mm -hmm. before repression, before punishment. So, Simply to say that people seem to forget that human rights are there to protect us all from abuses by the state and others, and uh, that we ought to respect each other, even if you do not share the same beliefs or traditions, and that the acts of one or more individuals do not represent the whole community to which those individuals might identify themselves with. And that the moment we start letting human rights protection to erode, one day our own human rights, and not just the rights of others, will equally fall victim of abuse. So then I, I, I'm sort of led to wonder, clearly there's been a shift in the past 75 years, and now seems like the best time to reinvigorate that spirit, to take up the call of never again, once again. Adjusting to the influence of social media, the, the changing faces of bigotry, of extremism, what new actions or perhaps legal me mechanisms or conventions do you think we might see coming out in order to combat this new wave, this new erosion, this new backslide? Well, uh, you know, um, 
what we are witnessing today is extremely worrying. I mean, we have uh, witnessed, uh, we have observed, I would say, challenges uh, to freedom and democracy, uh, not only in sub-Saharan Africa over the past year, mm -hmm. but even today in the Western world. And, and I can say that even in many countries in the West, democracy is in danger. A, you have places where, for instance, very few people go and cast their vote. But at the same time, you have also witnessing a rise of populist, extreme right-wing groups, which are now taking control. And we have to be extremely vigilant because uh, whenever we observe violations of human rights in any part of the world, it is a strong indication of a possible risk for the protection of populations. Uh, and it is important that we institutionalize prevention, which include protection and promotion of human rights. And I think that is something we need to pay today more than ever attention. When we speak about the universality of human rights, people would have think that today no one would challenge that universality. But you go to Europe, you go to a country like Hungary. Yeah, Yes. the border, detainment zones, visa processing, a lot of that is a violation. Right? Absolutely, yeah. a lot of that. But And then you see, uh, for instance, what happened recently when uh, Steve Bannon, mm -hmm. uh, who uh, went ahead of the election, uh, the European election the, to the parliament, lending support. Yeah, he to, went on tour. Hey, come <laughs> <Yeah>. on. <laughs> that is very worrying. And that's what I call the new alliance. But it is for us. Mm -hmm. It is for the people who are truly committed to uh, human rights, to remain vigilant and to stop this kind of uh, uh, leaders who are a real threat yes. to the peace in our world today. Because when you have people uh, who are today uh, spreading uh, uh, hate speech, you know, who are accusing the migrants, the refugees are the causes of uh, their uh, economic uh, failure, when you see uh, the rise of anti-Semitism today in mm -hmm. Europe, but also in part of the United States. I mean, when you see the anti-Muslim, you know, uh, spreading, you know, because I don't like too much using the notion of Islamophobia, one need to reflect further. That's why I prefer to, for the time being, to speak about anti-Muslim oh, okay. hatred, mm. you know, so, uh, and that is very worrying. We need to do something, you know, and, uh, and this is one of the reasons why I uh, initiated three years ago a project which is, uh, in which I brought religious leaders and faith-based organization actors around the table through a, a series of consultation, I mean, uh, throughout the world. And we, they finally adopted a plan of action for religious leaders and actors 
to prevent incitement to violence that could lead to atrocity crimes. Atrocity crimes by which I mean genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. So that could be a model for other um, actors to adopt to empower their own communities then. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, and what is important is that this plan of action, uh, which we refer it to the FAIS plan of action, because FAIS in Morocco was the city which hosted the first global meeting in which you had uh, very famous uh, and religious leaders of the Muslim world, the Jewish world, the Catholic, Buddhist, Hindu, Baha'i, yeah. name them all. This plan was launched by Secretary General Antonio Guterres okay. on July 14, 2017. And now we have embarked upon uh, the implementation of the plan of action. And we are going to have a series of meetings. We started first uh, in, uh, in Bangladesh, where uh, I had some concern about the tension between the Rohingya population and the host community. So, as you may know, religious leaders have influence over their followers. Of course. And that influence can be used positively, but we see, we saw it, it can be used negatively. And therefore, that is very important. And the next meeting will be taking place in uh, Helsinki, where we'll be bringing religious leaders from uh, Eastern Europe. Because uh, at the end of the day, we have to admit that not a single country is immune from atrocity crimes. Atrocity crimes can happen everywhere, everywhere. And we can therefore take action on time to prevent it to happen. That was very illuminating stuff. So I wanted to ask you one more question. Mm -hmm. uh, here in Canada, we are about to have a report released on the status of missing and murdered Indigenous women. As you doubtlessly know, um, Canada has a long history of abuse as well as cultural genocide towards its indigenous people. And this report uh, hopefully will begin new conversations on that front. I wondered what your perspective was as someone speaking for the international community and for the United Nations. Well, I mean, I, I would first of all maybe refer to an earlier report uh, which was released uh, in, uh, in Canada that was the 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Commission on Canada's residential school, which provide a very insightful advice on that issue. But, and that report talks of about 10 principles for truth and reconciliation between indigenous and non-indigenous communities. And those principles refer to the importance of recognizing and respecting the human rights for all groups or communities as well as public truth sharing, apology, and commemoration that acknowledge and redress past harms. And talking about redressing past harms, the report now you are mentioning, which is the Commission of Inquiry, mm -hmm. uh, it is extremely important. And uh, it has, of course, uh, led to a lot of, I would say, expectation mm -hmm. uh, from people it went even further. There were even people who were uh, referring it as a genocide. And my take on this is that uh, uh, looking through the report briefly, uh, it is clear that the Commission of Inquiry uh, went back much further uh, in time to look at close to 100 years. 
uh, of the experience of indigenous women and girls and root causes and structural uh, factors facilitating violence uh, are uh, described with a sociological understanding uh, of genocide, which is quite particular. Uh, it is not a traditional legal analysis. Yes, got it. You know, so uh, it is very important. I mean, uh, because if you uh, do uh, a legal analysis, I'm not sure that you can conclude that this is a genocide because it is not within the parameters of Article 2 of the 1948 Genocide Convention. And moreover, moreover, the perpetrators of this long, uh, in this long durée, because we are speaking about 100 uh, years, yes. but and then if you include even the recent cases in the last 15 years uh, of uh, killing, disappearance of this uh, woman, uh, the perpetrators are both indigenous and non-indigenous men. Yes. You see? So, and that's why I, I do believe that the emphasis should not be on how we label the injustice against indigenous women and girls. Today, the focus should be on a very important set of recommendations designed to attempt to address the past. However, imperfect such a task always is and make indigenous women and indigenous girls safe in the future i think that is what should be really the priority and second the findings uh, of this commission of inquiry are without any doubt sobering and give voice uh, to the pain of victims families and i think that is very important we have always to pay attention to the victims and the victims' families. And they also show uh, the findings of this commission of inquiry that no society anywhere is immune to serious and systematic violations. And as I said, Canada, uh, all democracy is not immune mm -hmm. of uh, atrocities and therefore protection of populations starts at home. So this report also has global ramifications. Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. And I think that is what is important. I mean, uh, in 2017, I commended the Prime Minister of Canada for the speech he delivered at the General Assembly. Mm -hmm. And I keep uh, repeating whenever I'm traveling, say, look, the Prime Minister of Canada did acknowledge that in his own country, there are problems. Yeah. And it starts by being transparent. Transparency is extremely important. And because if you acknowledge that you have problem, you will then try to find the solution. You know, and, uh, and I'm glad that also this commission of inquiry was put in place to look into these uh, allegations. And I look forward to see the f recommendation also being uh, implemented expeditiously because at the end of the day, these indigenous women and girls, their rights as indigenous people have to be respected, but on the other hand also, their rights simply as Canadian. As citizens, uh, so yes. Canadian citizens mm -hmm. have to be also uh, respected. 
no one should be left behind. Because at the end of the day, uh, where you have uh, systemic racism, where you have uh, poverty, that poverty led, for instance, to prostitution. Prostitution led also to involvement in drug trafficking, etc., etc. Structural so, violence. Structural yeah. violence. Yeah. We need to stop that. And that's where, uh, when we speak about the Sustainable Development Goal, I always remind people, it is not only for the Global South, it's for all, all and of us. every human <laughs> being around the world. Yeah. And I'm glad that uh, in this regard, uh, the light is being shed on this issue, and I look forward to see really Canada and the Canadian people moving together, because uh, what is important is inclusivity. Make sure that no one is left behind. Make sure that you manage diversity in the most constructive way. And that is what Canada is aiming. Canada is a diverse country where you have people from all type of group, religion, race, etc. And what is important is that they continue to live together as a nation, having what we would have said in French, Un commun vouloir de vie commune. Great. Thanks so much. Leaving us with a quote. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this latest podcast, and we look forward to bringing you new content in the future. To stay up to date with what we have planned, please follow us on Twitter at MIGS Institute and look for our monthly newsletters on our website. Uh -huh.